You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And joining me for this episode is co-host Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site readandreaction.com. Will, uh... Had our end of the year Harmonic Woods tailgate party over the weekend at Mayor's house, and uh, one last uh, one last kind of hurrah for the uh, 2019 season, getting ramped up for the 2020 season for the tailgate group. Yeah, man, I was a little bit jealous looking at the pictures you were posting on Twitter, but uh, but then you didn't respond to anything from about nine o'clock that night until like eleven the next morning. So clearly, clearly they made sure you had a good time, which is pretty much the way those those guys roll. Yeah, 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 it was it was a lot of good time. Everybody uh, there enjoying themselves. It was called the the orange and blue owl. So uh, of course Hawaiian themed and uh, creative namesake there for the uh, end of the year party. But uh, yeah, everybody who uh, uh, listens uh, incorporated with the harmonic woods. You know, a lot. I know many of you have stopped by to, to tailgate and say hello. Uh, you know, we'll do that again next year. Stop by, say hello there. But uh, thanks for those guys to. Uh, you know, I've been with that group for about two years now, and, and as they call it, it's, it's a tailgating experience. And uh, so yeah, nothing, nothing like it, and, and the party was no exception. Boy, absolutely it is. So I'm, I'm going to have to make it down there for a couple of tailgates this year, hopefully. And then uh, if they'll have me I'll, and they do the wrap-up and it's on a weekend, I'll see if I can't get down there again. But uh, obviously those guys are great. They reach out when, when I write something that they, that they appreciate, and we appreciate all the support they give us. Absolutely. Will, did you watch any of the uh, XFL? I watched a little bit. I mean, that's one. That's one of those things where it's like I miss football, so I turned it on. But at the same time, uh, this is the off season, and my yeah. family appreciates it being the off season. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, funny. We were at the party, and we had it on in the background at the same time as the Florida basketball game, and uh, could kind of just tell the Florida basketball game wasn't going to go going to go the way uh, that we want. So we weren't going to let that dampen spirits. So everybody just kind of. Went on, partied on while everything was on in the background. Yeah, well, the Vipers did get blasted. So, yeah. <laughs> so there were a bunch of people. Aaron Murray. Aaron Murray. Uh, there were a bunch of people making comments about that. And it is kind of fun when you can hate watch a Tampa Bay team with Aaron Murray as the quarterback. So, um, you know, I, I think this is – it was sort of the same thing with the – with the previous league, you know, with the Apollos and Orlando, and they got quite a bit of support. And obviously, because Spurrier was the coach, and 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 that didn't the the league didn't necessarily work out. But I think people appreciated having football around. I suspect the XFL is going to be the same thing, uh, especially once they get into the playoffs and once they get to the point where there's like a a championship run. Um, I think there will be some people who'll get behind it. But it's just like any new league, right? It takes takes a while to figure out who's out there, who's playing. But it did look like a higher quality of football than some of the um, startup leagues that we've seen in the past. Yeah, uh, from Gators that I've heard from over the weekend, Will Hill, Martez Ivy, Matt Jones, uh, just to name a few guys there, uh, of recent Gators that were uh, taking place uh, in, in games uh, in, in the XFL this past week. And I'll keep an eye on it. Like I said, this weekend, I'm kind of busy traveling uh, and all that kind of stuff and, and, and partying with those guys. So I didn't get to watch too much. But uh, if I don't, if, if I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it, but uh, I'll keep my eye on it. I'll keep my I eye mean, it's kind of like me watching the Pac 12. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like if it's on, I'll, I'll keep it on. But I mean, it's not real football. So why bother? They do have some cool innovations. I wish other things leagues would would pick up on the transparency during uh, replay calls. You can hear the referees and the and the, and the uh, official in the replay booths hashing it out, discussing what should go on, what, what going that what's going on. That was pretty cool uh, hearing some of the play calls, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that, they, got, they got some good things going. So hopefully uh, it, it's something that can, yeah, it can stick around in spring for those who uh, want to watch football or even more football. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that is one of the legacies of the original XFL is the is the camera that sits right behind the quarterback and gives yeah. us those views. And there are a few other things as well. So, you know, I, I think you learn when, when you have an opportunity to be entrepreneurially and entrepreneurial and experiment, it's always a good thing. Sometimes you learn the hard way because people don't like it, but sometimes you bring some things to the fold that maybe a more conservative established group wasn't wasn't willing to do. And, you know, hopefully the XFL provides some of that and also provides some competition because to be honest, um, it's a good thing for the NFL to have a development league. It's a good thing if there are guys who want to get paid and don't necessarily want to play for free in college or at least for a scholarship in college. And, you know, I, I think more football, the better, assuming that, uh, that the quality is where it needs to be. There you go. Well, you hit on something and we'll move on. I'm really wondering who's going to be that first high school, that first young college football player that's going to take that leap and say, hey, I want to go make some money. I'm not going to put my my health on risk for a scholarship. I think I can go make a name for myself better in the XFL than I can college football. So we'll see. I, I do wonder who that first player will be who will kind of take that jump. Uh, you know, the contracts aren't uh, – you know, not everything. They're nowhere near NFL contracts. You probably there's no, there's no probably about it. You're still going to get more notoriety, more publicity through college football. But if you're that first guy that's going to take that jump, then you'll already get the spotlight put on you just by doing it and, be, and by being the first one to do it. Yeah, it'll be kind of entertaining, I suppose, to watch and see who the first person is. To be honest, as long as it's not Gravon Dexter, I'm fine with it. <laughs> Absolutely. If you're gonna, if you're thinking about going to Georgia, go to the XFL. Yeah, there you go. It'll, it'll three get three five stars. You've committed to Kirby. They should all go together to try to uh, reduce the amount of uh, hype that they have to deal with. <laughs> all right, there we go. Have some fun with it. Have some fun with it. Before we get to the rest of this episode, we got plenty to talk about. Of course, uh, all these coaching rumors and all that stuff going around. We'll jump into it here with uh, Tim Brewster, Charlie Strong. We'll also get into Will's latest article over at Read and Reaction on hitting on the transfer portal uh, and what that means for the Gators now and moving forward. Also, um, Florida and Cal being announced as well. So plenty to talk about in this episode of Gators Breakdown. But before we get to all that, remember you can find Gators Breakdown on newsforjacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as News for Jacks coverage of the Gators. And if you missed uh, all our signing day coverage last week, go back, listen to that. Plenty, plenty uh, we discussed there. Rate, review the show on all the platforms out there and on social media. Follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. And remember, come see me at a speaking engagement for the Fighting Gators Touchdown Club in Gainesville on April 23rd. So if you're around the Gainesville area or if you can make the drive, uh, you know, that'll be right after the spring game on April 18th. I'll be Speaking April 23rd, so there'll be plenty to discuss. The rest of the schedule this spring consists of Gary, uh, Gators basketball writer Chris Harry on February 27th. March 26th will be Coach Savage and head coach Dan Mullen on May 28th. So big headline from late last week, Will, was Football Scoop reporting that the Gators are hiring Tim Brewster, uh, more than likely to take over the tight end coach role left by Larry Scott, and he took the uh, Howard head coaching job uh, well, I was kind of doing some research here, and we'll, you know, the easiest way is to go and look at previous schools and stuff. He's not even listed on the uh, North Carolina official site any longer. So, uh, you know, this is pretty much happening. <laughs> the, the writing's on the wall uh, from everywhere else. So, uh, but look, this is also, you know, a, a huge move in recruiting for the Gators, not just replacing a tight end coach. And even with a top 10 finish last week on National Signing Day, we all see where the Gators can still improve uh, in in the recruiting world. And the hiring of of Brewster is a step in that direction to shore up some of the recruiting deficiencies on the staff. And and we saw it when it was announced and and this excitement uh, from Gator Nation of of, of getting um, uh, a coach of Brewster's stature here. You know, this was a chance for Mullen to go out and make a home run hire. And he made the absolute best hire he could have made in this situation. And this was a power move. I tweeted it out when it was announced uh quote i consider this a power move by mullen to get brewster because it had to take a lot to get him it, it really did you know, jimbo fisher his former coach there now at texas a&m he coached with him for so long at florida state jimbo made a rest, recent run uh, to get him back at texas a&m but he decided to stay at north carolina with mac brown 
and Brewster has a long history with those two guys uh, and a, a more recent successful history with Jimbo. And now he's at Florida or, or, and going to be at Florida. So, Will, he, he did have uh, one season of history with Mullen back in 2012, but you know he had much more of a history with Jimbo Fisher and Mac Brown. Mullen identified a problem, went and found the best possible solution here. Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, anytime you have an opportunity, and I think, I think, just based on the players' reactions to Larry Scott leaving, obviously, those guys love him, and and so, you know, I, I think you do need to say that with the way Kyle Pitts has emerged and some of those things that he's done an unbelievable job there. But at the same time, you look at Brewster; he's a longtime Mac Brown assistant. Mac Brown has been able to recruit at places like North Carolina, where programs don't typically recruit real well. Then he's also been able to recruit at Texas. Um, and, and Brewster was a big part of that. I mean, just recently bringing in Sam Howell, he was the lead recruiter for him. He was the lead recruiter for Vince Young when they were at Texas. He's got former collegiate head coaching experience. He was the head coach at Minnesota for three years. He was a wide receiver coach under Mullen. So Mullen is familiar with him. He's got NFL experience with the Chargers and the Broncos and with the Chargers, he was a tight end coach right when Antonio Gates was becoming a tight end there. And then I think the big feather in his cap is he was the recruiting coordinator and tight end coach at Florida State from 2013 to 2017 when the Knowles were 11th in 2013 nationally, 4th in 2014, 3rd in 2015, 3rd in 2016, and 6th in 2017 on the national recruiting rankings. Um, and again, sort of the thing I think Gator fans remember is he was the lead recruiter for Dalvin Cook there. So, um, yeah, he, he's he's a upgrade in terms of what Florida really needs, I think. I mean, I don't think anybody looks at the staff and says, hey, we need somebody who's better at X's and O's on the offensive side of the ball. Mm -hmm. I think we look at the team and say, hey, if they can get a couple of difference makers, a couple of five-star guys coming in every cycle, then Florida ends up in that third, fourth, fifth national ranking, ends up really sort of bringing equal talent to Georgia and, and Alabama, and all of a sudden now with Mullen coaching, you you feel really confident that the team's going to get to where you want them to get. So I, I think recruiting was an area where Mullen has identified he needs to get a little bit better, and Brewster certainly improves that. Uh, yeah, a lot of that you hear. I'm going to kind of repeat in some of the, uh, the, the the bio that Texas A&M recently had of him. But, Will, you hit it on the head. Relentless, ruthless recruiter. And <laughs> Those are the two best <laughs> words, I think. Relentless and ruthless, believe me. I mean, you followed this man on social media. He is ruthless on the trail. He's ruthless with opposite fan bases. I remember being so ticked at him all the time when he was on Twitter during his time at FSU because he didn't care. He gave the opposing fan bases uh, – if you dished to him, he was going to dish it back. So um, it was with North Carolina this past season where he was instrumental. Also, you mentioned Sam Howell, uh, but Clyde Pender uh, in this most recent recruiting class, he was instrumental in uh, getting him to stick – uh, with North Carolina over Florida this past cycle. And uh, Brewster was at A&M uh, the year before with Jimbo Fisher as they both came over from Florida State. Uh, and, you know, following uh, – this comes from uh, to his Texas A&M bio. As I said, North Carolina pretty much had cleared everything out, Tim Brewster-related, on their website. So uh, I found that kind of funny. But uh, so, quote, an accomplished recruiter, Brewster helped build the Seminoles' top-ranked 2016 recruiting class, which featured 18 four or five-star rated players, as well as 13 Under Armour All-Americans and four U.S. Army All-Americans. Brewster helped the Seminoles recruiting class. Uh, uh, his re Those recruiting classes rank in the top 10 of ESPN's 10 ranking all five years he was on FSU staff, including uh, in the top five four times. Brewster was named ACC's top recruiter by ESPN and made 24-7 sports top 10 recruiters list and was among rivals' top 25 recruiters as well. Uh, Brewster was, big, as you said, Will, big in flipping Dalvin Cook uh, from Florida to, to FSU back in their time. Uh, that's the headline there from my perspective. Everybody remembers that. Uh, everybody remembers how excited we were when Dalvin Cook committed to Florida and then um, watching him flip the FSU and put it on Florida his whole career at, at Florida State. Uh, so, uh, and then, look, he – you, you mentioned his coaching prowess as well. You know, not only is Florida getting a good recruiter, they're getting a pretty good coach too. Uh, he made the, uh, they said Florida State made the tight end an integral part of their offense during Brewster's time in Tallahassee. Everybody remembers uh, Nick O'Leary, two-time finalist for the John Mackey Award, uh, which is given annually to the nation's top tight end. He won the award in 2014, as well as consensus All-American honors. Uh, left Florida State as a school leader in every category among Seminole tight ends, including receptions with 114 Yards, almost 1,600, and touchdowns in 18. 
Uh, so, you know, that was Lee Brewster being his head coach. He joined Florida State's coaching staff in February 2013, following a stint in 2012 as wide receivers coach at Mississippi State under Dan Mullen, uh, where he hate, where he helped Bulldogs break several records as well. He was head coach of Minnesota Golden Gophers from 2007 to 2010, uh, and he was an analyst for Fox Sports in 2011. Uh, he led the Golden Gophers to Insight Bowl in both 2008 and 2009, as Will mentioned Stints with the Chargers and the Broncos in the NFL. Um, yeah, before that, of course, with Mac Brown and and uh, at Texas and North Carolina. So a lot of a lot of coaching history there. Will uh, Mullen made uh, great replacement hires. I mentioned this in the podcast last week. Uh, he's, his replacement hire so far, going back to David Turner, Torian Gray last year. Those guys paid dividends on the trail and on the sideline as well. Uh, and now Brewster. In reading that biography, here's the worry, I guess, Will, is how much Brewster bounces around. <laughs> He's been a lot of places lately uh, in, in his career and you know, flirting with other schools as well. As, as I said, he flirted with Jimbo Fisher in Texas A&M this past offseason uh, as looking to go back there after only one season with North Carolina. It looked like he was going to stay there until Florida comes calling. He's going to come now and be a Gator. But you know, hopefully, uh, given his success recruiting the state of Florida, he likes it at Florida and stays for a little while. Yeah, I mean, he's a little bit of a mercenary, at least recently, but let's be honest. I mean, all all coaches in college football are mercenaries in some respects just because they move around so much. And, you know, the coach may be out and then they get, you know, the whole staff gets fired and they got to go find jobs. And and sometimes, you know, things just don't work out or you you have you butt heads with the head coach and you have an opportunity to move up a level and you leave. I mean, we saw that. Nobody would be talking about the nomadic nature of coaches if if Grantham had taken the job as a defensive coordinator at Cincinnati. You know, for for the Cincinnati Bengals, we would have said, "Hey, he went to the NFL. It's a good thing for your program." I think it's sort of the same thing here. Now, one interesting thing is it's um, not a lateral move to go from North Carolina to Florida, but it is tight end coach to tight end coach. So I suspect that. Um, you know, coming to Florida, he's going to be playing an integral part in the recruiting aspect of things. But if you're Brewster, you, you do figure that he probably wants to get another shot at, at being a head coach. I mean, Minnesota isn't exactly the best place to be a head coach. I mean, P.J. Flex had some success there, but nobody else really has. And, you know, you, you figure he wants to get another shot. And just going back to Jimbo doesn't really give you that opportunity. Going to Mac Brown, where you've been before, doesn't really give you an opportunity to differentiate, to learn something different. And so you wonder whether this is maybe a two- or three-year stint for him where he's going to learn some things that are a little bit different and then maybe get another opportunity. And again, if Brewster's getting opportunities two or three years from now, that's a great thing because it means he's bringing in high-level recruits and it means Florida's being successful. And so getting guys picked off your staff is a good problem to have um, because it means you've got a successful program. Yeah, this is one Gator fans should be definitely happy with, uh, especially given uh, I think a lot of us think you know the final step in in, in making this thing um, leak is you know showing up just at the fifties on the recruiting trail, and you know this is the the home run hire here that Dan Mullen should have made, could have made, went out and did it, and uh, hey, look, um, we'll we'll see. Hopefully, it paid dividends right away uh, on the recruiting trail. And the uh, fast start, as we kind of discussed last week with 2021 class already, keeping that fast start going uh, with a higher like Tim Brewster. Also last week, Will, many reports out there also saying Charlie Strong's joining the staff as a defensive analyst. Uh, I asked around more today uh, after we you know, heard late last week that he was still weighing his options before making a decision. I reached out again today. That is still the case. Charlie Strong has not agreed at all to be a part of Florida staff. Uh, yet he's got the NFL options. He's already turned down different uh, defensive coordinator jobs in college as well. So he's still weighing options. It, it, nothing has happened uh, there yet. That's not to say it won't happen. Uh, but as this word stands right now, Monday night, uh, close to 9 p.m., uh, still weighing some options there, not officially part of the Gators staff. But but we don't have to go through Charlie's history at Florida because it was about as good as you can get when he was defensive coordinator with Urban Meyer. Uh, that got him a job at Louisville right after that with great success and, and eventually led him to getting the job at Texas. Uh, and that was uh, kind of where it fell apart, Will. A complete train wreck there at, at Texas. Could never really get it going. 16-21 and 21 overall record. Gets fired in the last season. He goes... Uh, uh, and then you know, 21-16 at, at USF before getting fired there. So 
Look, let me get this out of the way. I, I'd love for Sean to become an, an analyst uh, this coming season with all the, the flirtation of Grantham and, and other jobs, maybe eventually becoming the defensive coordinator if we're getting the same Charlie Strong that was here previously. I think that's kind of where we have to uh, – I think that's where I'm kind of drawing the line there. If, if, if I know I'm getting 2008 Charlie Strong, then by all means, sign, sign me up. Um, so – but you know, maybe I weigh too much what happened at, at Texas. I know there's some circumstances there uh, that made it tough uh, for Charlie to win there. You know, but at a place with the, the resources and the recruiting base, much like Florida, he he failed there. You know, I would have at least wanted to see where he could control what he could control and still have a great defense in that in, in that scenario. He, he knows that side of the ball, and you know, I won't you know give Will Muschamp a whole lot of you know, kudos. Uh, but for the comparison there, even though, you know, Charlie, yes, did beat him head-to-head 2012 season, but for as bad as the head coach Will Muschamp was, the side of the ball that he knew was still elite, and you knew it was going to be elite. He was recruiting that side of, of, of the ball to be elite, and no matter how bad that offense was, the defense was elite uh, under Will Muschamp, left two elite defenses after he left as well. So, you know, Florida was going to have some great defenses under Will Muschamp. Everything went bad for Charlie at Texas. And you know, to me, that it's raised the question, and it's raised the question out there a lot uh, on Twitter and, and message boards out there too, you know, has the game passed him by? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I do know, you know, 2014, his first year as a head coach there, uh, 31st uh, rank in giving up 23.8 points per game. 2015 fell all the way to 83rd in the country, giving up 30.3 points per game. And then in his final season, final season as the Longhorns head coach, uh, the defense still ranked 80th in the country, giving up 31 and a half points per game. I mean, that's his side of the ball, and you know, just completely fell apart. In USF, the last three years, they ranked 41st, 97th, and and 75th. Uh, in points per game, uh, giving up on defense. So not a lot of recent success for Charlie Strong. You know, every situation is different. Doesn't mean he wouldn't have success as a good defensive coordinator. You know, maybe it was just too much being a head coach, not being able to solely concentrate on defense. Uh, I just caution the thought that we'd be getting 2008 Charlie Strong if he's eventually defensive coordinator again. As an analyst, it's a home run hire. Maybe just needs a rest, take a year off. Uh, you know, learn and, and and mesh with Todd Grantham, tra- trade some secrets both of them can do. Uh, about as nice of a guy uh, as one can be. Uh, holds a lot of accountability on not the field for, for players. But I just kind of want to look at this from uh, all angles, Will, because his name comes up a lot, of course, with his success at Florida under Urban Meyer. Anytime there's the thought of Todd Grantham going to take a job, especially this past offseason when Charlie Strong got fired, it was – Let's go get Charlie Strong as defensive coordinator. And you know, just going and looking at recent history, I, I just, to me, there's some caution there. I mean, I guess I, I nobody, uh, nobody thought Strong was really a, a, poor hire when in when he was dominating at Louisville and it yeah. turns out having tre- Teddy Bridgewater is a pretty good uh, a pretty good elixir for things that maybe aren't necessarily perfect on the defensive side of the ball I mean the, the comment you made about specifically that that you know running a program is different than running a side of the uh, you know a side of the offense or side of the defense and Mullen is one of the few guys who is able to be the head coach and also be the offensive coordinator and it's not necessarily an easy thing to do and so you do wonder when you start splitting when you start splitting your attention does that sort of st- does that stuff start to suffer i think one of the things you look at for when he was at texas is that the recruiting didn't suffer texas was still a, a very good recruiting program when he was there and then when you look at the 2006, 2007, 2008 seasons, it, he was the second best recruiter on that Urban Meyer staff behind Stan Drayton. He brought in 12 blue chip guys over the, those three guy those three years where he was the primary recruiter. So again, if you're looking at areas where Mullen may want to um, sort of shore up his staff, and and even bringing in somebody as an analyst doesn't necessarily put them out on the recruiting trail, but it does sort of grease the wheels to bring somebody on full time if you're going to bring bring them on. But I, I think I think what you said is probably most accurate that you sit there and you say, okay, a year to sort of take a deep breath, to participate, to sort of get your sea legs under you again and realize that the last six years don't define you, getting back to the types of things that you did in 2008 and even in Louisville through 2013. 
and and you know probably learn some things from his failures at Texas and USF too. I think that's one thing that we tend to underestimate is that if a guy can change based on the failure he's experienced, then he's going to be better off. It's only when the guy keeps trying to do the same thing over and over and over again that it becomes a problem. And so that's really what what you'll need to gauge is is he willing to change as. Um, you know, as he as he gets new evidence and get new, gets new data, and certainly I think having the challenge of somebody like Mullen and also Grantham there as well is going to be a good thing for him if he does end up at Florida. Yeah, so definitely worth uh, keeping an eye on there. Uh, we'll see. Like I said, we, we may may get an answer this week. I think we'll get some answers on some of these hires this week anyway. We saw all the change that went on in South Carolina and Tennessee uh, today, and them making changes and analyst hires and uh, all that. And we'll, we'll kind of see there um, some other names floating around uh, out there, of course, for, for analysts and coaching hires as well. You know, of course, uh, Kerwin Bell's name's uh, floating around out there too. Uh, nothing official with that one. Um, still, uh, no. I've heard it's not going to happen. Heard it is going to happen, but the latest I have heard is not going to happen uh, there. Some some other names, some other analyst positions out there may be floating around too. So we'll see uh, where Florida decides to go with this. But uh, never a never a dull moment, Will. No, it's not. And again, I mean, I think you add somebody like Brewster, you add somebody, if you have the opportunity to add somebody like Strong, you do it. I mean, these are light football lifers, guys who have a lot of knowledge and experience and getting that sort of knowledge and experience imparted to the players is a big deal. So, um, you know, uh, the analyst position, there's an opportunity cost to hiring one guy over another, but I think Strong gives you a uh, gives you a lot of knowledge there, and it's worth the risk, uh, assuming that he wants to come. And I think that's part of it is that there are probably other programs out there that would like to have him in capacities that are a little bit more um, robust than the analyst position, and it'll just sort mm-hmm. of be a question of whether he's able to find one of those and whether the the price is right and whether he thinks it's the right move for his career. Yeah, I think Arkansas was one of the schools I had heard that went after him as a defensive coordinator uh, position. Obviously, it looks like he turned that job down. As an analyst, I'd absolutely love it uh, for for a year. Uh, like I said, I probably would warm back up to him being a defensive coordinator with that year off and and kind of learning the program and learning the coaches, and learning the players, uh, all that. You know, I, I'd warm back. I'd warm up to it. I do think there may be better options out there if it had to happen now. But you know, as an analyst. And, and learning these players and all that stuff, I, I think it would be a home run hire in, in that capacity. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to happen now, right? We still got, right. we still have third and Grantham for one more year, and we'll. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there will be calls. You know, that is the one thing. There you maybe, go. Yeah, go ahead. that is the one thing that maybe Florida needs to take into account is that there's a there's a segment of the Florida fan base that remembers Charlie Strong extraordinarily fondly. Yep. And when you bring in somebody like that. And the, if the defensive coordinator struggles, then it starts to starts to get some noise in the program. And, you know, who are the defensive guys listening to and those sorts of things? And you always got to be careful when you do that. Right. I mean, we saw that a little bit with Georgia and Fromm and Fields. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that, that having Fields in there, you know, impacted Fromm in some capacity. And then obviously Fields leaves and you got a giant hole. Um, sort of the same thing, a little bit different, but you bring in a guy who's beloved as, as a defensive coordinator at Florida, um, you know, the first time there's a game where somebody goes seven for nine on third down, um, you're certainly going to hear the noise, or at least we will. And so you're going to have to deal with that. And that is one, you know, really the only downside to having Charlie Strong join the team. I'm going to make a joke. Grantham calls plays on first and second down. Charlie calls plays on third down. <laughs> we could have used that a few years ago when Nussbart was the offensive coordinator. Should have, yeah. had, should have had Nuss call first and second down, and then we could have had McElwain call it on third. Maybe they would have been like We'd been better off if I was calling plays on third down when that was happening. <laughs> uh, you got a lot of confidence in yourself, buddy. Uh, with Doug Nussmeyer? Yes, I do. <laughs> but hey, uh, here's the thing also. Uh, a lot of people are looking at this move as in, hey, look, it's probably just a matter of if not when Todd Grantham gets a job somewhere else, whether that be a, a defensive coordinator job in the NFL or if it's a head coaching job in college. And this is just a way to get Charlie in here, as I said, familiar with the program, familiar with the players, uh, get back in touch with Mullen, learn, as I said, you know, that him and Grantham, I think, can share some things. They're both great defensive minds, and maybe it's just a, a way of working him in here to eventually take over the job. 
Sure. I mean, Grantham hasn't made it a secret that he's looking for a head coaching position. And, you know, he, he was tied with the Mississippi State job for a little while. Obviously, he was tied with the job at the Bengals last year. So um, I suspect that if the right opportunity pops up and if he continues to have success, he's going to get a shot. And I mean, heck, if he if he does a good enough job next year that he gets a shot at a head coaching job, then great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you there are always options out there. I don't I don't know that necessarily you need to like lure Charlie Strong as his, as an analyst yeah. to to grease sure. the kids for him to be the defensive coordinator, but certainly having another voice there and and a familiarity with a guy that you could potentially put in that spot is a benefit. And you know the other thing is is that we do need to be clear that that uh, and and you were earlier, but we do need to be clear that nothing has happened here yet, and so yep. it's entirely possible Strong won't be here. And then you know this will be like the Chip Kelly uh, podcast that we did a few years ago, where, <laughs> where it's completely irrelevant. But now that he's at UCLA, we just want to burn it because none of the stuff we said is is true. So. No, no, it was just. I remember the initial thing was okay. I want, I want, I want Mullen, Frost, and Chip. Those are my top three. And then we get, hey, it looks like Florida's going to hire Chip Kelly. So yeah, you're right. We had to do this whole episode on this is what Chip Kelly would look like as a Florida head coach. So and, uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad it didn't come to fruition. Yeah, so I'm a little bit hesitant to do too much prognosticating <laughs> yeah. here, but I mean, again, because he, because Strong spent so much time at Florida, not just I mean, you know, he started as a GA like back in you know what like '82, yeah, '83 80, he was a GA, '88 he was outside linebackers, comes back at you know for defensive ends '91 to '93, then defensive tackles in '94. Then in 2003, comes back as a defensive coordinator. He's the interim head coach between Zook and Urban Meyer. Then Urban Meyer comes in, and he's the assistant head coach and, and co-defensive coordinator for for multiple years. So, um, you know, he, he's he's sort of lived that life where he lived in the gauntlet with Zook when the team wasn't doing very well. And he also lived in the highs with Urban Meyer when the team was doing outstanding. And so, um, you know, he knows what that pressure cooker is. He knows what the crucible is in Gainesville. So he's not going to be surprised by it. And we know that he can that he can stand up to it. So that, that's a big part of it, too, right, is having somebody who understands what they're getting into when they yeah. decide to take those positions. And, and I mean, things have gotten a little bit more intense over the past few years, but. It, it was intense back in 2006, 2007, 2008. I mean, I, I was on campus when the Fire Ron Zook website was started. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's 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 not as though Florida fans have gotten more reasonable over time. And that's one of the reasons why it's so much fun, right, is that they uh, – is that they're as passionate as they are. But that is one of the challenges for guys who come to, come to Gainesville to coach. Yeah, I mean, he's dealt with passionate fan bases at Florida, passionate fan bases at Texas, and as you said, nothing, nothing is going to surprise Charlie Strong uh, when it comes to when it comes to off the field there. So, all right, we'll move on uh, from here uh, for the uh, potential coaching hires. Uh, so look out this week. Uh, you know, I'm sure Mullen wants answers pretty soon uh, for for uh, what these guys are planning to do coming up soon. So, well, let's head over uh, to reading reaction your site there and the article uh, you released uh, this week and really hitting uh, the, the uh, transfer portal. And you you titled the uh, article to be the power and the risk of the transfer portal. And you've kind of hit on it last week in uh, our signing day episode and a couple of other times as well. uh, We know the positives of the transfer portal, uh, but there are some risks there that, that, that is taken. And, you know, after, after departures and adding in signees and transfers, uh, you bring up, quote, and the first thing we want to hit on here and bringing up your article, quote, the Gators aren't too far from being at an elite talent level. No, not at all. I mean, you start looking at the the 24-7 roster rankings where they take number five stars, number four stars, number three stars, and and add up basically a point total for the guys who are actually going to be on the roster. And Florida's probably going to end up somewhere in the seven to eight range next year, I would guess, based on based on sort of where they'll be and, and where other teams have been historically. And there's going to be a little bit more attrition from Florida's roster, I'm sure. So maybe that – and that's kind of why I'm thinking they'll be seventh or eighth. But, you know, they're bringing in four four, four or five-star guys with Brenton Cox, then you've got Gravon Dexter, and then you've got Shorter, and you've got Lingard. And if those guys can all play – then all of a sudden you've had a significant jump in talent. But beyond that, we talked last week for the signing day episode that they're bringing in 17 four-star guys too. So they're adding 17, I think it's 17 four-stars and six three-stars to the roster. The blue chip ratio is going way, way up for, um, for Florida's overall roster talent. Now it's a little bit 
front loaded because, because there's you know, 28 guys coming in in this class and they've had less coming in the last two and they've had some attrition from the 18 and 19 classes. But at the end of the day, Florida is going to have a talent ranking that's very similar to a team like Oklahoma or a team like Notre Dame or a team like Auburn and maybe even a little bit in front of those teams. And and so with they've been sort of in the 14th or 15th range the two years under Mullen thus far. And obviously they finished in the top seven or top six of the AP poll both years. So what can he do with a team that's eighth in talent, especially with a returning quarterback? I think that's why everybody's excited about the 2020 season. Uh, well, and so because of this and because of uh, the, uh, because of attrition, and that was one big part you made sure to, to hit in your article, because it's absolutely a, a point of discussion that has to be brought up the, the attrition and not only just the pure roster, but, you know, the recruiting classes the last couple of years uh, as well, you know, really needs to hit on the transfers. He's Mullins bringing in that, you know, he also needs to balance the roster as, as to make up uh, for, for transfers and, and their potential short time on the roster. You know, one reason it's hard to uh, equate and throw transfers into the recruiting rankings is because you're not really getting the three to four years out of these transfers as you would a normal recruit. Uh, you know, there are players that hopefully set you over the edge uh, when you feel like you're close to making something happen, like, uh, you know, a run uh, happen here. Florida, Florida's on the verge. Florida's close. Ten wins, Mullins, uh, first season. Uh, 11 wins. Transfer is a big part of that in these first two years uh, there for, you know. But, you know, a five-star recruit is worth more uh, than a five-star transfer just because of the amount of time you could potentially use them. So, but don't get me wrong. You know, there's there's nowhere that – there's, I mean, there's no one out there that has used the portal better than Mullen so far in, in making up for roster deficiencies that were left to him as well. I mean, hopefully he doesn't have to continue to chase his tail there. Well, I think that's kind of the point of the article is that – you know, you look at guys like Grenard who were brought in. I mean, obviously you can't, you can't make his, without his 10 sacks and 16 tackles for loss, it's a completely different season, a completely different defense. You look at the 2020 season, you know, each of the guys that he's bringing in plug a hole. So Cox plugs the hole left by Grenard. Lingard makes up for Florida missing on five-star running backs this past recruiting cycle. And then Shorter and, and, and Jordan Pouncey, the other wide receiver transfer, really start to mitigate the departures of the wide receivers. So Jefferson, Tyree Cleveland, Josh Hammond, and Freddie Swain. So they're they're helping with those guys that, but, but the point you make, I think is the thing that we need to watch for in the next year. So because of all the transfers that have been brought in, Florida's used essentially, I think they have, I think they are only using 24 of their initial counters for the 2020 class. And what happens is you get 25 each class, but then you can count back from the early enrollees. So because of some of the guys who were non-qualifiers last year, they had a lot of guys who as early enrollees in the 2020 class could be counted back, which is why they were thinking they were going to get 29 guys this class. So you look at this and say, okay, they, they, they use 24 initial counters, which means they can only sign 26 guys next year, which means that if they're going to have to plug holes with transfers, Let's say they bring in three or four more transfers next year. Well, that means you can only sign 22 guys on the actual, you know, for the for the actual 2021 recruiting class. And you just can't do that sustainably over time. And the biggest thing is, you know, so you bring in a guy like Cox. Cox comes in. He plays lights out this year. And he, he used one of those counters in 2019. He plays lights out, and then you have to replace him the next year with a recruit. Well, that means you've used two counters over a three-year period for him. Or let's say Lingard comes in, plays lights out this year, and then leaves for the NFL after one year. Well, then you used a counter for him in 2020, and you used a counter for him in 2021. So you've used two spots, two roster spots, essentially, for one position you know, for those two different recruits. And this is something our old pal Bill Sykes has been in my ear about this a lot over the last couple of months, just talking about the idea that you got to be really careful when you're managing your roster this way. And and people have, a lot of fans have said, you know, that the transfer portal is making up for deficiencies in recruiting. And in some capacity, that is true. But you got to be careful because what it means is that your depth is going to suffer because you're having to use two of those counters for essentially one position over a, over a couple of year period, rather than if you brought in high school guys, even if they stay for three years, even if they go into the transfer portal, all those sorts of things, it gives you more time to sort of build depth and manage your rosters. So the, the big thing is, is that the, there's a, 
obviously a reward with bringing in these five-star guys. But there's also the risk, and the risk is that this is a high-variance strategy, right? That it could turn out really, really, really well because these guys could all be lights out and Florida could have an unbelievable season in 2020. But if they all leave, specifically with the way the roster's constructed, there's going to be a lot of seniors leaving after next year, and there's going to be quite a bit of turnover, I would expect. And so then, do you have the depth to combat that? And Typically, this third year is when you see that sort of and it's a natural thing in most coaching um, hires where in the third year, he's going to have some issues because the guy who was on his way out, maybe didn't recruit quite as well as he should have when he, when people kind of knew he was on the hot seat. And then he comes in and has a transition recruiting class, which is a little bit weaker and it takes a little while to ramp things up. And in that third year, you see a dip. Well, I think Mullen's probably going to stave off the dip by having some of these five-star transfers come in. The question is going to be, does that mean that the dip comes in year four or year five? Because at some point, you got to pay the bill for the fact that you're bringing in these guys and they're not guys who are in your program for three or four years. Yeah. And hopefully this, you know, going back to last week, you know, hopefully this, I mean, look, I know there were transfers in this class as well, but you know, even without the transfers, not counting those guys, this was a good base. Um, this, you know, this pure recruiting class of last week, a pure high school recruits was a good starting point. Now you can't have what happened last year and by spring, you know, Jalen Jones and Chris Steele's gone and, you know, two of your higher ranked recruits, so one being a quarterback, one your highest ranked recruit overall in a class, you know, those the, 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 the class that's got signed last Wednesday uh, all need to be on campus in the fall. Yeah, well, and, and that was one of Mullen's hallmarks at Mississippi State is he he really sort of was able to keep those recruiting classes together, and he hasn't been able to do that at Florida yet. doesn't mean he won't be able to. It just means he hasn't yet. So, you know, the attrition in that first class is typically is, – is something that's pretty typical. But, again, you had Justin Watkins being dismissed from the team before before he ever not, had an opportunity to play. And then in this last one, like you mentioned, Jalen Jones, who's dismissed, and then you've got Huggins, who's dismissed. So there have been some uh, – or – a mutual decision to part ways, I guess, is the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, let's be honest. So I, I think from the standpoint of just making sure that none of that stuff happens with this particular class, yeah, that's important. But, you know, I said in the article, and, and I think this is this is the truth, is that I don't think that Mullen necessarily expected to use the transfer portal in this way. I think what happened is he had a lot of five-star guys who were available, and then he looked at the guys that, you know, the last two classes he signed, I think 20 guys in 2018. And then he only signed like 22 in, in 2019 because of some of the non-qualifiers. So he had the initial counters to really hit the transfer portal hard and was able to be successful with that. It's just not something that you want to do long-term. So if you see him still taking two or three transfers, if we're still talking about plugging holes two or three years from now, then I think it's a concern. You don't want to build your program. You don't want to supplement recruiting that is good but not elite with transfers continuously i think what he's done is he's supplemented recruiting that's good but not not elite now and the question then is are the hirings of of brewster and potentially charlie strong and maybe some other guys that they may bring in at some point are is that going to help them come into the elite of the elite recruiting because the reality is you don't need a bunch of transfers to come in if you're recruiting at the level of alabama or georgia or 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 lsu you just plug in the next guy and you, and you don't necessarily worry about the transfer unless it's somebody who's transformative, right? I mean, obviously Burrow was an important transfer for LSU and, and Justin Fields was an important transfer for Ohio state. And those are teams that are stocked with talent and up at the top every time. So it's not that you'd never take a transfer. It's just, you could be more selective if you're, if you're up at the top of the rankings. Yeah, I mean, in you know the, the Justin Fields transfer ended up hurting Georgia, where they had to go out and get uh, you know a Wake Forest quarterback to, to, to be their savior for this coming year. They're banking on that. So, yeah, and look, I don't want to. I think the transfers Mullen's taken so far have been absolutely needed, and that's exactly the way it needed to go. But as you said, Will, uh, the long term solution. I liken it to um, listen to you know if you listen to some NFL talk and. Yeah, I don't. I hate to compare NFL and college, but you've always heard the old adage of building a team: build a team through the draft, not through free agency. And that's kind of this is that's kind of the same way of looking at this as well. The better teams, you look at the Patriots and, and what they did and how they kind of built their foundation for their team. It was through the draft, and that's how they were able to to basically you know stack. Super Bowls upon Super Bowls and all that, you know, it's it's teams with success. You built through the draft, built through recruiting, and not have to worry about uh, in, incoming guys later on. 
Yeah, I mean, the example I used in the article is that, you, you know, you buy furniture on credit or 12 months, same as cash. And then, you know, at the 12-month mark when you don't have the money, you go out and you get a credit card and you put that on a no-interest credit card and then you get, buy yourself some time there. But eventually the bill comes due. And the the real solution is you have to make enough money to pay the bill. And, and that's really all we're saying is that, you know, the, these transfers are are prolonging the ability of Florida to, and, and that's the other thing is Florida's recruiting is getting better from, from 18 to 19 to 20. The talent has improved dramatically, especially over the McElwain era. So it's not as though Florida is recruiting poorly. It's just that they're not recruiting at the level of Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and, and Clemson. And, you know, that's where we want to go. Obviously. I mean, I think there was the, there was the map after signing day that showed the state of Florida was owned by Clemson yeah. and, and that can't happen. Right. I mean, the, the state, of florida needs to be a place where at least a florida team wins the state but you'd obviously hope that it would be would be the gators who would win the state so um there's still some work to be done there i think mullen knows that i, I don't think he's stupid i think he knows how, how to how to manage his roster and how to construct it but there's been a lot of talk from that i've seen on twitter about using the transfer portal as the new way to recruit that this is the you know mullen playing chess instead of checkers and in some respects that's true but i do think it's just something you got to be careful about because it is higher variance because if a if a guy you bring in blows out his knee um, you know, and that happens with a guy who's who's you know a high school recruit too. But if the guy that you're counting on to plug a hole blows out his knee, it's a lot more serious than the guy who came in and you have a couple of years to develop him, and you know you're expecting him to contribute as a sophomore, junior, and a senior, as opposed to these transfers who have to who have to uh, contribute right away to be worth the counter that you're using on them. Absolutely, yep, that's the way I look at it. And as we said so far, Mullen's been able to hit on it pretty well uh, there. So. Something to definitely still be excited for, uh, just not a long term, uh, not a long term solution. Uh, I think, uh, I think you can still go get one or two, uh, and, and you know, like a lot of the top teams are doing to set them over the edge, uh, there. But uh, absolutely the right move so far uh, for Mullen and company. Uh, well, a couple more. Okay. Well, I was just gonna say I am absolutely not anti transfer because <laughs> as anybody knows, I was calling for them to bring in Burrow. So <laughs> it's not that you don't bring in a transfer. It's that the guy has to be transformative. And and that's yeah. that's the thing that I think is is reassuring about bringing in these guys is that they are five-star elite-level athletes. Now, whether that, now, they haven't necessarily shown an enormous amount of, of uh, production on the field, but their pedigree says that they will. And you figure that under Mullen, he's going to get the opportunity to get them to a place where they'll be able to do that. So um, when you have an opportunity to get a game changer on the field, you have to do it regardless of whether it's transfers. Um, but, you know, if they start bringing in a bunch of three-star transfers to plug holes, we got to get a little bit worried. All right. Well, a couple more topics here before we uh, sign off for this episode and uh, I put it on over the, I think it was late Friday. I got the email from the university of Florida and uh, pretty cool here to see uh, you know, Florida announced sophomore defensive back Kyrie Elam is Florida's representative in meetings with the Southeastern conference football leadership council covenant in Birmingham, Alabama this past weekend. Uh, the Football Leadership Council was one of three components of the SEC Student Athlete Leadership Council. Two other components are men's and women's basketball. Uh, but the Student Athlete Leadership Councils were introduced for the sports of football uh, and men's and women's basketball, which in addition to the conference, conference's longstanding uh, Student Athlete Advisory Council, they provide student athletes with additional opportunities to engage with campus leaders and conference office staff. The council serve as a conduit of communication to the conference office in issues related to student athlete experience and student athlete wellness. Uh, agenda items for the group uh, this past weekend included meeting SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, a review of NCAA and SEC legislative items, open discussion on topics submitted by members of the council, and engagement with football officials on rules of the game, student-athlete referee interaction, and careers in officiating. Uh, so former University of Kentucky student-athlete and three-time NBA All-Star Antoine Walker uh, visited the group and led a discussion in financial literacy literacy and education. So, Will, we know everything Elam did on the field uh, this past year as a true freshman, played in all 13 games, five starts, uh, including the last three of the season, uh, second on the team with three interceptions, 11 tackles, four pass breakups, one of seven true freshmen in, uh, in FBS to record three or more interceptions. All three of his picks come in the fourth quarter of games, uh, including the last one that sealed uh, the Gators' victory over Virginia in the Orange Bowl. 
Well, it was pretty impressive, you know, that Elam already has this stature on the roster and, and in the program. Uh, so you know, a true sophomore that's Florida's representative at these meetings, you know, never mind what he's done on the field, uh, but Florida looks like they have a, a pure, you know, good pure leader here as if, if Mullen and Scott Strickland deem him to be this as a true sophomore, be their representative in everything we just discussed that this council puts together. I think it really speaks to uh, the type of uh, kid and person Kyrie Elam is. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you get this sort of responsibility this early on, it's an impressive thing. And I think it's particularly important for Florida with all the leadership that they're losing after this year. I mean, you got mm-hmm. Felipe Franks transferring to Arkansas, but you've got Hammond and Swain and Cleveland and, and Jefferson, those guys at wide receiver who were really so selfless, um, you know, giving up their own stats for, for the good of the group and the good of the team. And, and if Elam is part of being able to continue that, then that's, that's a big thing for the Gators because um, that is one thing I think that, you know, will be a concern as we talk through the, the off season is where's the leadership going to come from? Because it was clearly the wide receivers and Franks who provided a lot of that leadership. And that doesn't mean that Trask didn't provide it. And it doesn't mean, and, and then P Ryan, I guess was one of the other ones, but you know, it doesn't mean that Trask can't provide it. It doesn't mean that it won't come from Trevon Grimes or maybe even Kyrie Elam. It just means there's going to have to be different guys, different voices, Voices in the locker room, and so it's a good sign to see that one of those voices in the locker room, um, at such a young age, is giving getting an opportunity to represent his team um, in such a high-profile way with the SEC. Well, when I tweeted that, uh, I had no idea it would blow up like it did on uh, on Twitter, and it's just funny. I, I was just checking it to see if I could go back and see how many likes it got, and lo and behold, it was one of the last like tweets still. I, I posted it on Friday, and it recently still got like here on Monday night, three days ago. It's got 610 likes there, so I think Gator Nation really took uh, you know a little bit of pride here in, in Kyler Elam and uh, his um, you know, being such a young player, uh, a young kid, and already – leading uh, the Gators there uh, in such a, you know, I think uh, an important honor of being able to represent his team, uh, his university there and figuring out a lot of the issues and things that they can talk about there with the SEC office and, and, and officials there uh, to, to make the better, to, to make a better relationship between you know, student athlete officials, SEC officials, school, uh, the conference itself, and all those things come together. Yeah, well, it's important with all of the discussion and the legislation, actually, that's coming out about capping coaches' salaries and making sure that players can make money off of their license and or off their likenesses and, yeah. and those sorts of things. There's going to be some changes going on in college football over the next five or ten years. And in order for college football to survive, they're going to have to have buy-in from the players. And that's one of the things that I think is important is that they're hearing the concerns of those guys and hearing sort of what they go through. I mean, anybody who's ever – spend any time with a football player while they've been in college understands that those guys aren't real students, that they've got, they've got responsibilities. It's essentially a job. And, um, yeah, so it's a good thing they're giving those guys representation. It's a good thing that they're talking to them about financial literacy. And Antoine Walker may even be the perfect guy to do that because he struggled so much with it when he, when he was in the NBA and, and so can really speak to it from a perspective of learning from, from sort of, you know, learn from my scars type of, uh, type of discussion. And so um, you see that a lot with young guys who get a lot of money very quickly and, uh, you know, the only the only downside to this is that as good as Elam has been, and if he, and with the leadership that he's showing, I, I suspect he's only got two more years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's not forget, you know, this is basically. I mean, you still could consider him a true freshman uh, at this point. You know, the season just got over with uh, there. So, but you know, when the when the season rolls around, be a sophomore uh, there. So a lot of uh, a lot of good, a lot of good coming from that. And lastly, Will, here we go. Um, Gators will officially meet the Cal Golden Bears. Uh, and look, we got a little bit of time for this one, though. Uh, six more years down the road, but they've officially announced. We've kind of known about this for a little while, but we'll meet the Cal Golden Bears in 2026 in Gainesville in 2027, all the way to Berkeley there. So Cal's visit to Gainesville will come on September 19th, 2026, with the Gators' return trip to Cal on September 4th, 2027. So our early season matchups there. Well, we know, you know, FSU is a, a given every season, but uh, I hope Gator fans have their frequent flyer miles ready to go in the coming years because the, uh, the Gators uh, in their non-conference schedule, not not so far, right? And that USF in 2021 and 23, 
But then you got Utah in 2022 and 2023, Miami. So you get to save some fire miles there, 2024 to 2025. And then Cal in 26 and 27, Arizona State in 28 and 31, and Colorado 28 and 29, and Texas in 30, 31. Now, all that over the next uh, dozen years or so. So uh, in the meantime, most of us uh, have watched Gator football, and we, we haven't uh, we haven't got to see games uh, like this uh, following Florida football. You know, it was uh, at the Harmonic Woods party uh, this past week, and I was in, in Mayor's uh, Robin Martin's his uh, his Gator room, uh, all decked out. And there's a section where he has a couple of pictures, and you actually saw some of these. Will um, he sent he sent them to you? There was a couple of pictures there of Florida playing and beating USC in the swamp in 1982. And so, how cool must it have been to sit, to see Florida? Uh, and the Trojans matched up in the swamp, and then Florida traveling to LA uh, the next season and, and tie the Trojans in a game. You know, these programs, except Texas, don't don't have the history, uh, and you know, there's other schools here. And we look, we've known about these matchups for a while, but now they're official, and, and it's going to see it's going to be fun to see the orange and blue invade these towns and all their fan bases coming to the swamp. If I had will, if I if I had to rank them based on the games themselves, just the football side of it. You know, top three, probably Texas, Utah, Miami, uh, with the way it stands right now. If I'm basing it on destination, I think a lot of fans are looking at it in that eye as well. Little, uh, I think that one's a, a little tougher here, but I'd probably go Utah, Colorado, just to kind of see some different scenery, uh, the mountains surrounding there, and probably Miami again, just because uh, Miami's fun to hang out in. I don't know, man. Tempe's pretty nice, depending, <laughs> on, depending upon the time of year. Now, yeah. I'm out there in like September, I'm not sure that's necessary. It probably will be. But <laughs> I think obviously one of the challenges with with bowl games is that you sort of see the same opponents over and over and over mm-hmm. again. I know this year, if if Florida had played Michigan, we might have had like three people watching just because nobody wanted to see the Gators play Michigan again, and and some. Some diversity is good when it comes to understanding where your program stands and from recruiting. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about going out to the West Coast. If you're playing out there, all of a sudden it makes the recruiting maybe a little bit more nationwide because, you know, a kid from California who's going to get to play out in Utah and then Berkeley and then and then Arizona in, in his – you know, three or four years at Florida, maybe takes another look at the Gators just because, hey, I'm going to get out west and have an opportunity. So, I mean, I think obviously Texas is a big one, uh, but Colorado is a cool place. Anybody who's yeah. ever been older, that's a cool place. And looks Ralphie, like you can see Ralphie. It looks like a cool stadium <laughs> to, to to catch a game. And certainly, there's some things that are legal in Colorado that aren't that fans might be interested <laughs> in. Out of Berkeley, you got the same thing, man. So, you know, I, I think. Uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, it's a good thing to play some to play. It's a good thing to test yourself. It's a good thing to sort of get out of the 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 criticism that Florida's had over really the past decade or two decades of just you know never playing non conference opponents outside of the state of Florida or outside of the Southeast. And uh, you know, I think this gives you an opportunity to really set yourself up. And is one of the questions about the twenty twenty season actually is that the non-conference schedule is so bad coming up the Florida is going, the question will be is if Florida slips up particularly against LSU or Georgia, but let's say still wins the sec or something, there's going to be some harping about, about the quality of the schedule compared to some of the other teams that are out there, particularly with the PAC 12 playing, playing nine conference games. So um, it's a good thing to strengthen your schedule. Strickland, I think has heard the, the noise loud and clear that, um, that the fans aren't aren't necessarily interested in just going to cupcake after cupcake after cupcake, and I and you know they make more money off of TV than they do at the gate anyway, and mm-hmm. so these, these are going to be made for TV matchups. And hey, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, especially if it's I mean, I don't think anybody would argue that starting the game this year with Miami was a heck of a lot more fun than mm-hmm. starting the year with with Charleston Southern. And I know it was. On, I know it was on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. But I mean, I think fans felt that way, right? You knew yeah. where you stood, and obviously, if you'd have lost that game, you know, the 2017 game against Michigan was sort of a deflating loss. Um, and I'm sure Miami felt that this year when they lost to Florida. But winning that game sort of springboards you into um, into feeling like it could be a special season and, and gets everybody amped up. So uh, I think you have the opportunity to do that, and and Florida's going to have have an opportunity to do that basically every year from from 2021 on and and so it's exciting to see that 
Well, you mentioned something we haven't really mentioned it here on this podcast. You mentioned TV money meaning more than the, the gate money and all that. And that, that's kind of, you know, well, uh, that, that'll finish up our conversation on the upcoming opponents in the next 12 years or so. But we never really hit on the the report that's been out there now for at least a month or so of uh, CBS not re- basically re-upping with the SEC and the SEC now being pretty much owned by, not really owned, but the TV rights being owned by ESPN, ABC, uh, we'll have to say goodbye to the CBS theme song. I think that's the part mostly everybody's mad about. <laughs> they won't get to hear that uh, theme song anymore. That is a CBS song, not an SEC song. So CBS will uh, will keep that if they decide to stay in the uh, college football world. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, SEC Network's already a ESPN, ABC branded entity anyway, up in Charlotte. Uh, in the same building is ESPNU. So there's already so much. Um, marrying and loving of the sec and espn uh, uh all together but now it's going to get ramped up even more where you won't be able to watch an sec game uh that's not branded by espn abc so we'll see uh, of course that cbs game at, at, at 3 30 was made so popular in the 90s and the 2000s and all the you know the florida georgia game always 3 30 every year and then lsu auburn or lsu alabama night games and the lsu uh, Florida night games that we remember during the Tebow years and or basically the Urban Meyer years uh, there. And a lot of people don't necessarily care for Gary Danielson and his analysis. I don't mind him so much, but uh, I get the ire uh, there. But you know, the years of CBS and uh, Vern Lundquist calling the games and all that, we'll have to, looks like uh, in the coming years have to say goodbye to that. But it is interesting. You, you mentioned all the TV dollars there. And uh, it looks like in a couple of years, we'll have to say goodbye to the uh, SEC and CBS. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, I've already missed Vern since he's not on anymore. It, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's 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 hard to really get into an SEC game without him butchering somebody's name along the way <laughs> or you know, what yard line they're on. I mean, that was always sort of fun. I, I think uh, I think Danielson. I mean, whatever. It's it's fine. Like I don't. I just hit mute when I don't want to listen to it, and then so it's it's it's. You know, I, I don't necessarily, but the, the theme song is something that when that theme song comes on, I just remember Peyton Manning not being able to beat Florida at three thirty. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was I was a kid in Indianapolis watching those games because I hadn't moved down to Florida yet, and still you're sitting there and it's just those games that were where it was raining in Knoxville and raining in Gainesville back to back, where Florida's you know coming back with something like you know forty five straight points or something in one of those games. Um, you know, those are sort of the things that you remember and, and sort of your indelible image of the two programs and Spurrier's fun and gun and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, at the time as an outsider looking in, that, that's sort of the indelible image that I have. And and really sort of, I mean, my dad went to Indiana, so he had a lot of inferiority complexes, but the, the inferiority complex there was sort of Ohio State was the big bully. But, you know, you do at the time, Ohio State couldn't compete with the SEC even back then. And, and that's sort of proven out over the next three decades. So, um, yeah, it's sort of a, a changing the guard. It's one of those things where I think everybody sort of presumed that ESPN was going to be able to, I mean, the SEC network sort of set the stage for them to take, take this yeah. out and, and really that it's a value. It's a more valuable entity for ESPN than it is for, for CBS. And so, you know, it's, it's a change. Change isn't always good. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but as long as the Gators are on, I'll, uh, I'll be watching. So ESPN is going to get what they want. And the good thing is the SEC schools will get a lot more money <laughs> dealing with this because CBS was getting away with a cheapo contract that they the the, the conference and uh, hey look CBS I don't blame them whatsoever it was a contract the SEC signed and uh, they had to live up to their billing of it but uh, the SEC in just a couple of years will be uh, raking in like I said I just brought this up I'd have to go back and look at the official number of what they think uh, will happen what the deal will be but uh, SEC schools will be getting a whole lot more money coming up in the next couple of years. Well, this is good. I won't have to create another fake email so that I can get a trial of the CBS app when I'm on the road for, for the, like one game of the year when I'm not at home and I can't watch it and they won't let me stream it from my cable box. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that was, that was definitely what one that, uh, that caught me off guard when, when Florida was playing Auburn this year and I couldn't get it on. I couldn't get it on my app for my home phone and I'm like, or from my, from my uh, home cable. And I'm like, what's going on? (laughs) Sign up for their app. So, um, yeah, I I don't know what CBS is doing. It's one of the interesting things about sort of the football 
ecoverse, right? I mean, CBS lost the NFL for a very, very long time and sort of allowed Fox to build themselves up as a competitor. Um, ESPN obviously has become the behemoth in this space and and has really focused in the last year or so to getting back to the games and getting back to just owning property. And and obviously in a DVR world, that's valuable and it's valuable to Florida and the rest of the SEC. So yeah, they're going to be making what, like six or seven times as much money as they yeah. were before? Which means if you th- if 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 you're one of those people who hate watches the SEC and and thinks everybody's biased against them, just wait because they're only going to get better. I think the biggest thing will probably come out of it. We'll get a lot more of the uh, big SEC game of the week being in prime time instead of always you know being at three thirty. That will probably be a change. I think they'll keep that three thirty window too. I think they'll. I don't think they'll always put that top game uh, at at eight p.m. Uh, there, I think they'll flip flop that three thirty uh, APM slot, but that's just something uh, to look out for. Yeah, we'll just have to keep that in mind when we're when we're scheduling when we're going to do stuff because it was pretty obvious earlier this year that you know the Tennessee game was going to be at a certain time, and you could always sort of count on specific games throughout the year being at three thirty, and yeah. you were going to have some time to do stuff for the evening. So uh, won't have that anymore. But you know, there's also nothing like a night game in the swamp. There's nothing like a night game in Death Valley when Florida's going in there. And, uh, you know, that's sort of if it makes the product better, it makes the teams better, makes for a better experience. Um, I'm all for it. I just sort of, you know, my proclivity is, is that I hope that the players get to share in some of the uh, some of the spoils that they're generating with with these new TV contracts. But, you know, we'll see the legislators are starting to push that and we'll see where that ends up. All right, one big uh, one big part of what everybody was saying is means, hey, maybe that means we get a night Florida Georgia game. That ain't happening. The city of Jacksonville does not want a night Florida Georgia game. I was at the last one, and it was, it was a, a scene to behold. I don't think that the city doesn't want it. The universities don't want it. You will, you'll see the game at noon before you see it at night. It will not. The city, it, it, it just won't happen as, as, as it currently stands right now. A night, eight p.m., seven thirty p.m. kickoff, Florida Georgia is not happening. <laughs> I, I look forward to playing this back when three years from now. It's really yeah. <laughs> And I'm like, I thought you told me this would never happen, Dave. You're like, well, it turns out when you pay somebody an awful lot of money, they figure out how to make things work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if if they do, you might see the National Guard there security just to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jacksonville isn't that bad a place. Come on, man. No, it's not. It's really not. But when you put those two fan bases together, when it's already – a sight to behold when the game starts at three thirty, and you just add five more hours of the drinking. It just, I mean, come on, you know what it turns into. Oh, I know exactly what it turns <laughs> into. Which is part of why I'm so in favor of it. But uh, you know, hey, it, the the world's largest outdoor cocktail party is is aptly named for uh, for various reasons and, and different levels of debauchery. I have no doubt that an eight o'clock game is probably not in the best interest of anybody but the people broadcasting the game. But the people broadcasting the yeah. game be the ones who win. So. Uh, I, Jacksonville ain't going to get what they want on this one, man. If ESPN says 8 o'clock, they're going to jump. <laughs> All right. Well, what you got coming up on Read Reaction? Yeah, so uh, so my new writer, Nick, he's, he started out with a with an article about the Charlie Pell air, and he's got a couple of things coming up this week. <laughs> he started writing the article and texted me today and told me he's going to have to split it into two because oh, wow. he had 8,000 words written about the 79 season. So um, I think some people have enjoyed seeing some of the older, the older teams brought in. And, I mean, these older teams really set the stage for the Spurrier years and then the Meyer years. So it's been an interesting history lesson for me as well. So we'll have a couple of things on there and then, one of the things I'll probably write in the next week or so is I do want, I have been charting um, Kyle Trask over the over the year when he came in, and I think there's some interesting things to to look at there and understand what where he can take some steps forward and where we might not expect him to take steps forward. So that'll be coming in the next couple of weeks as well. All right, that's Will Miles. You can find him on his site readandreaction.com and on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter. At Gator Dave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gator's Breakdown.